0: Should you ever find yourself in a horror movie, running from the boogeyman or some kind of monster or some guy in a hockey mask, I offer this wisdom to you. And I kind of, you know, consider myself an expert in this. I grew up, I love the horror film genre. I grew up watching the 80s horror movies. We lived in the country in Oklahoma where like no houses around, like the perfect setting. And I would sit there and watch horror movies every night thinking, There's somebody out in the woods going to get me. So, should you ever find yourself in a horror movie, I offer the following wisdom to you. Number one, when it seems that you've killed the monster, never check to see if it's really dead. Number two, do not search the basement, especially when the power has just gone out. Number three, when you have the benefit of numbers, never go alone. Number four, if you're searching for something which caused a noise and find out that it's just the cat, leave the room immediately if you value your life. Number five, if your car runs out of gas at night, do not go to the nearby deserted-looking house to phone for help. Number six, when something bad is chasing you, bear in mind that when you try to start your car, No matter how reliable the vehicle is normally, you will have to crank the engine over many times before it will fire up. Number seven, if you're using a gun to combat the monster, it is a good idea to quickly find a new means of defense. Because no matter how much ammo you have, you will run out just before you kill the monster. And finally, number eight, if you're running from the monster, you will most likely trip or fall. If you are female, you will trip or fall. Horror movie wisdom, something that countless people needed during horror movies in the 1980s, but not too far removed from the Persian Empire in the 480s B.C., Esther and Mordecai and the Jews certainly needed some wisdom because life for them felt like a horror movie. And even though their enemy Haman was just killed, which we saw last week at the end of chapter 7, his evil plan, his evil law was still waiting to be carried out. And so for the Jews living in the Persian Empire in the 480s, life was a horror movie. And they needed some wisdom. And there are times in our lives when it feels like we are living in a horror movie. When it feels like we are running away from the boogeyman or some monster. There are times when it feels like we are living in a nightmare. And when we find ourselves in those moments, in the horror movies of life, in the nightmares of life. Like Esther and Mordecai in The Jews... We need to be reassured. We need the words and wisdom of Jesus, our Savior. And so, our big idea today comes straight from Jesus. And it's something the people of God in the book of Esther needed. And I have a hunch that many of us today need to hear Jesus say this to us too Fear not, little flock. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 verse 32. He says, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's joy to give you the kingdom. And Esther and Mordecai were about to get a foretaste of Jesus' words as their story played out in the most powerful kingdom of the world at that time. So turn to Esther chapter 8. Look at verse 1 and hear the word of Jesus the Good Shepherd. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, keep in mind that the events in chapter 6 and chapter 7 at the beginning here of chapter 8, they all occur in one day. Remember from chapter 6, King Yahashuerus has been up all night at this point. He had a bad case of insomnia. Mordecai was finally honored for saving the king's life, and Haman, his arch enemy, had to parade him through the streets that morning. And then Esther has a dinner party for Ahasuerus and Haman, where Haman's evil plan to kill all the Jews was finally exposed. We saw last week that the king became angry. He approved of the capital punishment of his best drinking buddy, Haman. And so we begin chapter 8, and the arch enemy of the Jews, Haman, is dead. But that does not mean that Esther and the Jews are out of the woods just yet. Haman, the psycho, is dead. But the crisis is far from over. Haman may be dead, but his edict to destroy, annihilate, and kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire is still in effect. In 11 months... The entire Persian Empire has permission from the government to destroy, annihilate, and kill all Jewish people. And so the fear is real here for the Jews. They are facing extinction, they have 11 months left to live, to live in fear. So enter into the story as we begin today. Put yourself in their shoes. They have been told exactly what day on the calendar that they are going to die. So feel the fear that they feel as we begin chapter 8. This is a nightmare that they have not yet woken up from. And so we ended chapter 7 last week, and the king's anger has abated at this point. This is the second time in the book that we are told this happened. In chapter 1, the king got angry and got rid of Queen Vashti, his former wife, and then his anger abated, and he replaced her. Now he just got rid of Haman, his right-hand man, and his best drinking buddy, and now the king's anger has abated, and so now he must replace Haman. And so the king takes the signet ring that he gave to Haman, and he now gives that to Mordecai. We also read in verse 1 that the king also gave all of Haman's estate to his wife, Queen Esther. And so now Esther approaches King Ahasuerus, her husband, yet again to make another request. Think about what happened in verse 1. What's said there. Don't skim over that too fast. Esther just revealed to her husband of five years that Mordecai is her cousin who adopted her. So technically, Mordecai is Esther's dad. So Ahasuerus has just learned that Mordecai Mordecai is his father-in-law. King Ahasuerus is not the man who knew too much. He's the man who knew too little. Esther has kept all of these secrets from her husband and yet she goes to make another request of him. So we're supposed to feel that tension here. She's kept secrets from her husband for five years and she just reveals another one to him. So Ahasuerus gave Haman's entire estate to Esther, which would have been a vast estate with lots of properties and servants and cars and boats, etc. And so we're left wondering if the king is going to say something like this to Esther when she makes another request. We kind of get that feeling that he might say something like this to her. I just killed your enemy and gave you his entire estate, his houses, his servants, his retirement account, his vintage car collection. Everything that he had is yours. Are you really going to ask me for something else? Will the king respond this way when Esther makes yet another request? You might expect him to. But as we saw last week, Esther is shrewd. She knows what she's doing. And here's how we see her shrewdness emerge again. First, she strikes while the iron is hot. Haman just died. She knows that this is the best time to ask the king to revoke Haman's law. The king just approved of Haman's murder because of his evil plan and because he thought Haman was trying to rape his wife. So she knows now's the time to strike to ask him what I need to ask him to revoke Haman's law. She knows she cannot wait a day or a week or two. She must capitalize on the situation now. Secondly, Esther is shrewd because she falls at his feet weeping. She breaks down. And what man does not cave in this situation? This is just the second of two times when Esther actually shows emotion in this book. The first time was in chapter 4, verse 4. So picture Esther crying and weeping before her husband with Kleenex, and snot coming out of her nose, tears coming out of her eyes. And what husband is not moved when he sees his wife break down and cry like this? A bad husband is not moved. A smart husband is moved. Third, Esther is shrewd because she piles up four deferential clauses here. She says, if it please, if I have found favor, if the thing, if I am pleasing. Now, what's interesting about the last phrase where she says, if if I am pleasing in his eyes, is that Esther uses this Hebrew word in the sense of pleasing in appearance, of being beautiful, being lovely. The same word occurs in Judges chapter 15, verse 2, to refer to a woman being beautiful and attractive. And so I think Esther is being shrewd here. She knows her husband. She knows that he loves beautiful women. So she's saying to him, if the king thinks that I'm beautiful and attractive, then grant my request. Picture her batting her eyes and saying, don't you think I'm pretty? Actually, she's crying at this point, so I think she's saying, don't you think I'm pretty? Esther knows her husband. She knows how to use her body to get what she wants. Fourth, she's shrewd because she once again brings up the fact that it was Haman's evil plan to kill all the Jews. She does not place blame on her husband, the king, for approving of Haman's law and signing off on the paperwork to put the law into effect. She puts all the blame on that psycho Haman. And so she asked the king to revoke the letters that Haman sent out, instructing the entire Persian Empire to kill all the Jews on Adar 13. But there's a problem. The king's hands are actually tied. Because Persian laws were irrevocable. Even if he wanted to, King Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the world at this time, cannot revoke one of his own laws. And that's what he says in verse 7. The tone of his words are something like this. Look, I've done all this stuff for you, but I cannot do more. My hands are tied. What more can I do? The law is the law. But what you can do is this. Dial M for Mordecai and get your dad, my father-in-law, on the line, and you guys write another law that allows your people, the Jews, to defend yourselves, and I'll sign off on it. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city together and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, by law, the Jews cannot overturn Haman's edict, but what they can do is at least level the playing field. They can defend themselves. So, Mordecai's edict was a complete reversal and annulment of Haman's edict in one sense. Haman's law gave permission to kill, Mordecai's law gave permission to defend. And so on Adar 13, by law, the Jews could fight to save their lives. And all of this is just a continuation of God not allowing his people to be snuffed out. Keep that in mind, what's happening here. All of this is... A continuation of God not allowing his people to be snuffed out so that Jesus, the great snake crusher, can come and fulfill God's promise that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Yahweh will not allow his plan of redemption to be halted or stalled. So on the surface... It just looks like a counter edict was signed and put into effect by Mordecai. But if you read between the lines and you look out the rear window, you see the hidden hand of God working to save his people. Yes, God may be silent in this book. His name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. He may appear to be hidden, but he is very much involved. God is absent, but he is very much present. And the same is true in your life today. If you read between the lines, you will see the hidden hand of God working to save you. Yes, God may be silent in your life. He may appear to be hidden, but he is very much involved. God may seem to be absent but he is very much present in your life. And so today you may be crippled by your fears. You may be paralyzed by your fears today. You may be experiencing vertigo and and losing your balance and losing your bearings, but you can take heart because just like the Jews in the 480s BC, it is your father's pleasure. It brings your father great joy to give you the kingdom regardless of what your situation and circumstances look like. In fact, even because of and through your situations and circumstances, God is working to bring about redemption in your life. And that's why today, right now, whatever is going on in your life, think about it. What's keeping you up at night? Whatever is keeping you up at night, causing you to toss and turn in the sheets, whatever it is that kept you up last night, And whatever is causing you to bite your fingernails. And whatever is keeping you from eating because you have lost your appetite. You can really take to heart and believe Jesus' words to his people when he says, fear not, little flock. Fear not. I mean, for crying out loud, Jesus made Saturn. He made Saturn. He can take care of you. He just spoke and the planet Saturn came to being. I don't know if he added the rings later or not. Maybe. Maybe he looked at Saturn and one second later was, it needs some rings. I have no idea. He just spoke and Saturn came to be. And that's the God that you serve, Christian. And that's the God that says to you today, fear not, little flock. Four little words to comfort your heart today. Four little words that you can write on a post-it note, place on the mirror in your bathroom to remind you when you get scared, when fears paralyze you, when those panic attacks come on so strong, four little words to strengthen this little flock here at Grace in Santa Maria. Four little words to help you when you feel like life is one big nightmare. And now back to the fear-inducing nightmare that Esther and Mordecai are facing. Mordecai's edict spreads north by northwest, and then it goes throughout the entire Persian empire. It goes viral. And I assume at this point the Jews have made some bumper stickers that said, Adar 13, fight! I, I think they blasted emails, they tweeted, they did Instagram stories, they clogged everyone's feed on Facebook. And what was the response? Did all the haters and the internet trolls come out of the woodworks? Did all of the trolls subtweet the Jews? Surprisingly, no. There was actually a great reversal and a show of support for the Jewish people. And in verse 15, Mordecai walked out the 39 steps or so out of the king's palace, all decked out in royal garb, and the city of Susa erupted in cheers. The Jews shouted and rejoiced, and the narrator says they had light and gladness and joy and honor. And wherever Mordecai's edict went, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. In other words, they partied, they celebrated, and not just among the Jewish people. Many people who were not Jews decided to be Jewish because fear overcame them. What a reversal. Earlier in chapter 4, Mordecai went out in sackcloth and ashes. Now he's the one who's dressed like a king. What a reversal. Earlier, when Haman's edict went viral, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion and sadness. But now when Mordecai's edict went viral, there was rejoicing and gladness. What a reversal. Earlier, Esther kept her Jewish identity hidden out of fear And now, people all over the Persian Empire adopt a Jewish identity out of fear. What a reversal. But make no mistake about it, Grace, even though there is joy now for them, it is a temporary joy because the threat is still real. Don't lose sight of that here. Haman's edict is still in effect. State-sponsored genocide for the Jewish people is on the way. On Adar 13, it will be legal to kill any Jew. And so the Jews may party for a moment, but Friday the 13th is on the way. Friday the 13th is on the calendar. Joy may last for the night, but fear comes in the morning. Joy may last for the night for the Jewish people. And they celebrate with their streamers and all that stuff, cake. But fear comes in the morning. The Jews have not woken up from their nightmare yet. They have 11 months to wait. 11 months of fearing. 11 months of stressing. 11 months of worrying. 11 months of tossing back and forth in their sheets. 11 months of biting their nails. 11 months of waiting for what's going to happen on Friday the 13th of the month of Adar. And so it's the anticipation of potentially being killed on Friday the 13th that's actually killing them. As legendary filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock said, there is no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. There's no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. Alfred Hitchcock knew that there's no terror or fear like waiting for the bang in a movie. He knew that the scariest part of a horror movie is waiting and anticipating the monster or the boogeyman to pop out. The terror is in the anticipation. And that's exactly where the Jews are at this point. After the celebration and the partying, the reality sets in. In 11 months they will have to fight for their life. In 11 months, they might die. So the terror lies not in what happens on Adar 13 necessarily, but in the ante- anticipation of it over those 11 months. And we don't get the details on what happened over those 11 fearful months. As Alfred Hitchcock also said, what is drama but life with the dull bits cut out? What is drama but life with the dull bits cut out. And so in chapter 9 of Esther, we fast forward through 11 months of waiting to the day when it was all about to go down. The dull bits of the last 11 months have been cut out, and we're about to see the drama unfold on Friday the 13th. We're about to hear the bang. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also keir- killed, and I've got to take a drink here because I'm gonna, about to have to pronounce Haman's sons' names. They also killed Parshendatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vizatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. And I promise you I pronounced those names differently in the first service. <laughs> Continuing. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So, after 11 months of waiting, Friday the 13th finally arrived. And it turned out to be a nightmare, not for the Jews, but for every enemy of the Jews living on every Elm Street in the Persian Empire. What a reversal! And the very reversal that played out personally between Mordecai and Haman now plays out publicly between the Jews and their enemies. There was a nightmare on Elm Street on Friday the 13th in Persia for every enemy of the Jews. And three times the narrator tells us that fear fell upon the enemies of the Jews. Chapter 8 verse 17, chapter 9 verses 2 and 3. Three times he tells us that fear fell upon the the enemies of the Jews. And so the Jews experienced this great reversal. They were afraid. For 11 months, they were afraid. And now, on Friday the 13th, it's their enemies who are afraid. And the narrator tells us in chapter 9 that the Jews killed and destroyed anyone that tried to kill them. In the capital city of Susa, 500 men were killed as well as the ten sons of Haman. And in the rest of the Persian Empire, he tells us that 75,000 men were killed on that day. Now, notice two things here, lest you think this is a lot of bloodshed, like it's a horror movie. Number one, no women or children were killed by the Jews, only men who tried to attack the Jews. They were simply defending themselves. Secondly, three times the narrator tells us that the Jews did not lay hands on the plunder of their enemies. Chapter 9, verse 10, and verses 15 and 16. And so the Jews weren't going around like Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, and they weren't going around like Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street. They weren't going around and doing drive-bys, shooting people, and they weren't looting anything either. They only defended themselves against those who wanted to kill them. They didn't plunder anyone's goods. Like any good teenager at a summer camp in an 80s horror movie, they simply fought back and defended themselves against the monsters and boogeymen who attacked them. And here's the thing about Esther. Esther grew up in the 80s. Esther has watched quite a few 80s horror movies because Esther knows that sometimes when you kill the monster in a movie, it can come back in the sequel. And Esther doesn't want there to be a sequel. So we see Esther one more time ask the king for something. She knew that there would be pockets of resistance in Susa, so she asked the king's permission for two things for the next day on Saturday the 14th which is another great 80s movie if you haven't seen it. Saturday the 14th is like a spoof of Friday the 13th starring Richard Benjamin. Anybody ever see it? One of my favorite movies as a kid. That's beside the point. Here's what she asked for on Saturday the 14th. Number one, to kill any remaining threats. And number two, to hang the bodies of Haman's sons on the gallows. Esther wants to make sure that this nightmare that the Jews are living goes away for good. So the king obliges, and they kill the remaining threats in the city. And then the nightmare is over for the Jews because verse 18 of chapter 9 tells us that they celebrated when the dust settled. And as the audience, watching this movie unfold before our eyes, we get to Exhale now. We get to breathe a little. The the bang has happened. The Jews are safe now. The psycho Haman and his sons are dead. And Friday the 13th is over and the Jews are alive. They woke up from their nightmare. Alfred Hitchcock said that this is how to please an audience. He said, give them pleasure. The same pleasure they have when they wake up from a nightmare. How do you please an audience? Hitchcock knew. He said, give them pleasure. The same pleasure they have when they wake up From a nightmare. This is where the Jews are at. At the end of verse 19. In chapter 9. They have woken up. After a nightmare. The pleasure that they feel. Is because the threat is no more. The nightmare is no more. They woke up from the nightmare. Of Haman's evil edict. And they are the ones. Who are alive and well. And there's going to be no sequel. To this horror movie. And isn't that. What happens to us? And isn't that what we do when the Lord takes us through some trial? It feels like a horror movie in the moment, doesn't it? It feels like we're living a nightmare and then we wake up and we realize we made it through by God's grace and we have that sense of pleasure and we have that sense of rest and we have that sense of relief. Alec Motier said, since it is through faith in the Lord's promises that we are saved, then surely if faith is mighty to solve the great and eternal problem of our sinfulness, alienation, and helplessness, is it not the way to tackle every problem? To look up to our almighty, ever-loving God and say, I trust you? The vision of the enthroned God is the great stabilizing factor in life. Let me ask you today, what are you going through? What are you going through right now? What nightmare are you dying to wake up from? What nightmare are you dying to wake up from today? The way to tackle whatever problem you have today is to look up to your almighty, ever-loving Father and say, I trust you. I trust you I don't understand what's going on but I trust you I'm confused but I trust you I'm scared oh God I'm scared but I trust you and sometimes you have to say it a few more times sometimes you just have to say it over and over again I trust you I trust you I trust you I believe help my unbelief I trust you I trust you. I believe. Help my unbelief. I trust you. I trust you. It's true. The vision of the enthroned God is the great stabilizing factor in life. And the enthroned Son of God says to us today, fear not, little flock. Jesus knows your fears Jesus knows everything that you're concerned with. He knows everything that's caused your pain, your fear. He knows why you're scared. He knows your fears. And you know what? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't minimize your fears. Now, we do this with our children, don't we? When they don't want to go to bed, we're like, go to bed. I can't. I'm scared. There's a monster in here, mommy and daddy. What do we say? At least what I say, There's no monster, go to bed, quit being scared. That's what I do. There's no monster in here. Listen, if if there was a monster in here, he would have already eaten all of us. They're hungry and they're not that patient. If there was a monster in here, you would already be dead. But that's what we do with our children. We minimize their fears. You have nothing to be afraid of. There's no such thing as monsters. Go to bed. That's what I do. Jesus doesn't come to us that way. He doesn't minimize our fears. He doesn't shame you because of your fears. He doesn't shame you because you panic, because you get panic attacks. He doesn't scold you because you're afraid. He doesn't come alongside you and say, just get with the program, bro. Come on, this thing is not that big of a deal. Get over it. He doesn't come to you and say, there's no such thing as monsters. Go to sleep. He doesn't do that. He does not minimize our fears. He does not shame us because of our fears. He does not scold us because of our fears. Instead, he just says simply, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's Joy to allow you to share in the Trinitarian love that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share. Jesus has qualified us for the inheritance. We are his adopted sons and daughter. The kingdom is ours. The inheritance is ours because Jesus has qualified us. We could not qualify ourselves because we're sinners. We break God's law every day. It's not by our works. It's Jesus' works on our behalf that qualify us his perfect life lived in absolute obedience to God's law on our behalf is what qualifies us so may your savior's voice today bring you the comfort that you need this morning may it comfort you tomorrow on february the 13th jesus words in luke 12:32 change everything his life changes everything his death and resurrection and ascension changes everything it's not that we're in danger from enemies the truth is that we are actually a danger to ourselves because we're sinners and so jesus came to rescue us he came to rescue us from us he came to rescue us from god from the coming wrath of God. And Jesus went to and endured the darkest, scariest place on the planet and in the universe, the cross. He faced the full fury of God's wrath for our sins on the cross so that we would not have to fear standing in the white, hot, holy presence of Almighty God, which is a scary place to be. If you don't have the righteousness that you need in order to stand there. The righteousness of Jesus that he freely gives to sinners by faith when they trust in him. Being in the presence of God is a scary thing if you don't have the righteousness of Jesus. And that's the hope that emerges from the book of Esther. God is committed to his glory. We see that in the book of Esther. He's committed to his eternal plan. And God is committed to his people. He is committed to our eternal satisfaction and joy in him. And Jesus is the proof. Jesus is the reason why all the partying happens in these two chapters of Esther and why they can be ours too. That's what all these words here are pointing to. They're pointing to union with Christ. All of these words that the narrator uses here, words like light, gladness, joy, honor, feasting, holiday, rest, all of that is ours and can be ours because we are in union with Christ by faith. All of that is ours because of Jesus. But even though all of that is ours, the book of Esther is also as real and as raw as it gets. It does not hide the realities of living in a fallen world. The book of Esther reminds us that life is hard. It reminds us that sometimes life feels like a nightmare. And so there's no Christian veneer here in the book of Esther. There's no super Christianity that emerges from the book of Esther. Life is This side of God's eternal kingdom is real and it's raw. There's pain. There's doubt. There's questioning. There's sorrow. There's darkness. There's sadness. There's agony. And there's fear. Real fear. There are phone calls that change your life. There are MRI results that change your life. There are broken relationships that change your life. And just like the Jews living in Persia, life sometimes seems out of control. But what they learned, what we need to relearn this morning, is that what is out of our control is under His rule. What is out of our control is under his rule, under his kingly rule, under his kingdom. John Calvin said, so numerous are the dangers which surround us that we could not stand a single moment if he did not watch over our preservation. Fear not, little flock, Jesus is all the proof that you need that God is watching over you, that he's watching over you today and everything that's happening in your life. May you look to your shepherd this morning. May you see his strong, providential arm working for your good. May you see his smiling face and run to him. May you see him enthroned and say, I trust you. Let's pray. Father, we do see your son this morning enthroned, and he is the great stabilizing factor of our life. Lord, we know that we are sinners. Many times, God, our fears grip our hearts. They paralyze us. We're just stuck. We can't move. We don't know what to do, what to say. Situations have us pulling our hair out. We just don't know what the answer is sometimes, Father. It's real. So would you turn our eyes to your Son this morning that we we would hear His voice to us say, Fear not, little flock. And then may his words echo in our hearts so that we can then say by faith, I trust you. I trust you. I'm scared, but I trust you. I'm confused, but I trust you. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. I don't know why what's happening, why what is happening is happening, but I trust you. Help us today by the power of the Spirit to say that for your glory for our peace. In Jesus' name, amen.